Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health Dave for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. Today's cool fact is that vegetarians can get almost 20% of their calories from fats that get produced by the bacteria that ferment all the fiber that's in their gut. So much for being a low-fat vegan. It's simply not possible. You're listening to episode four of Upgraded Self Radio from the Bulletproof Executive. We're here talking about how you can upgrade your mind, body, and life to levels you never thought possible. Today, we have a great interview with Dr. Emily Deans. Emily is a board-certified psychiatrist, and she uses evolutionary clues to solve modern psychological problems. We talk about the causes of ADHD, the role of ketogenic diets in mental disease, and how you can change your diet and lifestyle to avoid mental illness and keep your mind bulletproof into old age. Now we're going to move on to our exclusive interview with Dr. Emily Deans. Emily is a board-certified psychiatrist, and she's going to be talking to us today about the relationship between nutrition, health, and mental disorders. Emily, thank you so much for being on. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Really glad to be here. Emily, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. The first question that we wanted to ask you was, how does evolution shape our mental development? Well, evolution is kind of a funny thing. It's, it's sort of the bath that we were all kind of 
the bathwater that we all sort of lived in for generation after generation after generation. And evolution is a pretty random thing. It's not necessarily directive. We don't necessarily evolve to a higher state, but we often evolve to a state of better adaptation to a particular environment. So for a long, 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 long time, uh, we have evolved in a sort of a hunter-gatherer paradigm for many thousands of generations. And it's really only been the last 10,000 years that we've been more agricultural, really only the last 50 to 100 years that we've been industrial, and only the last few generations that we've been sort of digital humans. So there are a lot of different things about our lifestyles in many, many respects. I focus mostly on the food, but there's also a lot about sleep, about um, elect, you know, elect- electric lights and sleeping differently and TV and uh, exercise and all of these things are important to our mental health and our physical health. Um, but again, I primarily focus on nutrition. So do you speak specifically about epigenetics or is that part of what you're looking at, how your children come out, even how your children's children's come out? Is that part of the picture for you? Right. No, I mean, epigenetics is a big part of what's going on because that's how we sort of adapt in real time. And uh, it's an actual physical mechanism where we change the expression of our DNA um, to sort of uh, due to different interactions with our environment. So uh, there was just a study out, a paper out uh, earlier this week from Brain Behavior and and Immunity talking about the theoretical implications of the plastic BPA on our epigenetics and how it might change. It's really actually quite interesting, our DNA, which eventually gets expressed um, into proteins, which sort of codes who we are. And what is working and not working and doing and not doing in our bodies, um, DNA is bound up sometimes in little things called histones, and the epigen- which are these kind of balls that hold the DNA together and keep it from being um, transcribed. So epigenetics is basically how these histones come on and off the DNA. So that's how, that's the exact mechanism how in real time you can kind of be changing changing your genes, even though we're all sort of stuck with this set of chromosomes that our parents gave us, you know, when we were conceived. So then how does what we eat affect our mental performance? Well, our brains are very powerful. or It's quite small. It's only, you know, two to five percent of our total body weight, but it uses about 20 percent of our body's total energy. And um, it's very hungry. It also requires a little bit different fatty acid profile than a lot of the rest of our body. It requires a lot of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids to work properly. And it requires a lot, all these energetic reactions require a lot of mitochondria and cleanup and things need to be working as efficiently as they can be. So if you're missing nutrients, if you're not getting enough magnesium, if you're not getting enough zinc, if you're not getting enough of your B vitamins, um, you end up having an inefficient processing of of energy in your brain, and, and this can lead to build up buildups of toxic byproducts and you know all sorts of stuff that makes your brain not work as well. And this is pretty well understood. I don't think too many people have put it all together, um, but it's it's pretty well understood. And there's some interesting evidence, for example, that older people with dementia who have 
have more B vitamins have less brain shrinkage than older people with dementia who have who had fewer B vitamins in their diet. So there are lots of different little strands of evidence like that that tell us that nutrition is very important to how our brain works. And it plays a role in probably all of the different types of major mental illness and neurologic disease also. It's such a breath of fresh air uh, to talk with you about this because one of the main points of the Bulletproof diet is to reduce the number of toxins in your body and to increase mitochondrial function specifically for mental performance, which is something that I've been doing for years uh, myself, including overcoming some uh, some brain stuff that I diagnosed with fMRI scans. Wow. So I, I'm just, I love hearing this become more into the, the public sphere of knowledge because it's so effective at just making you feel better and perform better. What I really like about it is that I, I eat an evolutionary style diet and I found that it's very good for performance and physical health and it's also good for mental health. And I really like doing something that's very healthy, but that can help in pretty much all directions at once definitely have seen the same effect, um, both with the people who have tried the stuff on the blog, as well as with uh, about a dozen or so years of doing it myself. What about the people, though, who are taking statins? Uh, how do those affect our brains versus, say, the evolutionary diet that, that you and I would both be fans of? Well, I worry about statins, um, mostly because I think that the brain really needs cholesterol. Uh, the brain has about, I think, 20 to 25% of our body's free-floating cholesterol. It's needed, uh, you need fresh cholesterol all the time in your brain, especially for rapid turnover in the synapse. And, you know, statins, some of them do cross the blood-brain barrier, so vistatin is one that does. And there's some evidence that it can cause sleep problems, aggression, anxiety, depression. I've had a few case studies of my own patients who, when they were put on statins, they, one of them became quite suicidally depressed. Another one, nothing was really working, and we took her off her statin, and she got a lot better. Somebody else, actually two other people, got quite paranoid, one to the point of hearing voices, and uh, it went away when we took the statins away. Now, those are just anecdotes, but they certainly made, you know, got my attention, of course, so I really looked into more of the literature about statins. And the scary thing is, is even though they're recommended for the general public for prevention, as we all know, uh, most of the studies were actually never done in people who uh, struggle with mental illness. And that's, you know, according to the National Institutes of Health, it's about 28% of people in the U.S. every year uh, struggle with some sort of uh, what are called the Access one uh, mental disorders, which include anxiety and depression and bipolar disorder and ADHD and, and uh, schizophrenia and, and those sorts of things. So with the fact that they are kind of recommended for all consumption, yet hadn't really been studied in this huge subpopulation, bothers me, and especially as it's very clear that uh, the brain needs cholesterol, that statins actually it has been shown in um, some studies interfere directly with the certain types of protein binding and the serotonin receptor and also through decreasing cholesterol um, may have other untoward effects. So I worry about statins. You know, there's not a smoking gun if you really look at the literature very fairly. And some of the studies that have been done directly, they're small. It did show that the statins that don't cross the blood-brain barrier, um, uh, uh, pravastatin is one that does not, um, have less of these kind of mental health side effects. But this was, you know, one pretty small study. And as far as I know, 
it's the only one that really looked at it very carefully. And the interesting thing, though, about statins is that before we had statins, we had older classes of cholesterol-lowering drugs like gemfibrozil and, and those kinds of things. And they actually, when you look back at the literature, definitely there was an increase in depression and suicide when you look back at kind of the epidemiologic studies. And there are some large statin trials that also show an increase, but it wasn't statistically significant because suicide is pretty rare. You have to have a pretty large group of people if you're going to pick that up. And it's hard to do a group on, you know, a a huge study on, say, 20,000 people for five years. That's extraordinarily expensive. So we really have to rely on um, sort of retrospective uh, epidemiologic studies, which don't give us exactly, it, it can't tell us causality. It can just kind of give us a clue as to what's going on. But getting back to my point, those old fashioned drugs were probably worse for your brain than the statins. And it's not really clear why, because the statins actually lower cholesterol more. Um, But statins also perhaps the way that they help people when they do is through an anti-inflammatory mechanism, not through lowering cholesterol, that lowering cholesterol is sort of a secondary, uh, sort of an accidental side effect of the statin, as it were. Um, So it could be that anti-inflammatory mechanism keeps statins from being as detrimental to the mental health as uh, the old-fashioned cholesterol drugs were. I hope that this makes some sense. (laughs) Oh, it it makes great sense. Uh, I I love hearing the idea that that cholesterol is good for the brain. Um, On the Bulletproof Executive uh, Diet, I, I recommend several raw eggs, particularly raw egg yolks, a day in order to help with mental performance. Are you familiar, though, with the the research about statins being antifungals, actually, as well, and how that may be part of their mechanism of action? I've just really touched on that. I haven't looked at it in any depth, but yeah, yep, it's certainly okay. possible. And what about the uh, very old statin drugs like cholestyramine or even, say, activated charcoal, which lowers LDL about 15%? Um, are these are basically bile sequestering agents that work to help detox the body by increasing bile turnover. Um, I've found that they help a lot with mental performance in very short time frames, especially in people like me who had problems with toxins or with uh, with fungus infections. Is that something you've come across in your practice? Well, the long term effects of the cholestyramine is one of those uh, drugs that was definitely associated with an increase in risk of depression, violent death, and suicide. Um, in those old studies, um, looking back. So short-term usage, I don't really know about so much, though I know it can be used for detox and fungal infections and that sort of thing. Um, it's not something that's any part of conventional medicine, surely, I don't, I don't think. But um, but the long-term effects of cholestyramine, I would be concerned about. Uh, on a regular basis, yeah, me too. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want artificially low cholesterol unless there was a problem going on. Right. Let's move on a little bit. What are some of the foods that maybe would cause the biggest problems in mental development or in mental function um, for our readers or for our our listeners? I think probably the biggest problem and when we've seen the biggest escalation in some of these uh, mental illness categories is over the past 50 years. And it's not just because we, even though we do recognize it more and it's certainly more on our radar that people have depression and anxiety and that these are illnesses that we need to treat. It's also definitely true besides just our increased awareness 
that the incidences of these illnesses have been increasing quite a bit over the last 50 to 100 years. And that really points to the time when we started to have a lot of industrial processed food and a lot of fake fats. So what I think is sort of the most disastrous combination would be some sort of fried, very nutrient poor, but fairly calorie dense processed food, like a chip of some kind, you know, that really has very little in the way of, 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 you know, magnesium, you know, magnesium or, 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 or any of our vitamins, or, of our vitamins or, um, and then it's and fried then in the biggest vegetable oil, oil which, which clearly, is, clearly is, is not an evolutionary kind of thing that we've been eating at all before the 50 years ago. And there's a lot of evidence to show that this omega-6 has de- displaced the omega-3s, that we really need to be getting enough omega-3s and that that omega-6 can be disastrous for the brain if there's too much of it. Uh, You know, hearing that stuff, I could just give you a hug. Um, This is exactly the sort of information that that we've been promoting. And also just that that I've seen such an improvement in so many many people in the anti-aging nonprofit I work with. When they stop their omega-6 consumption, you see people of all ages, even sometimes people in their 80s, who just have profound improvements across a broad range of health parameters. It's it's really incredible. Yeah. You know, it, omega-6 were sort of touted because they lower cholesterol and all these things. They were touted as this sort of health food, the polyunsaturated fatty acids, and they're cheap and they're plentiful. And boy, our country sure does grow a lot of them. But we never ate these kinds of things before. And our, our bodies and brains just aren't designed to have its as uh, Stefan Guinet said in a recent blog post, it's basically an unregulated experiment, jacking up our percentages of omega-6 from vegetable oils to 10 or 12% of our calories. Um, it's not anything that human beings had ever experienced in the entire history of our evolution. You know, we do, there's certainly omega-6 in poultry and in um, animal fats, but it's in fairly small amounts and uh, we need some of them. But I personally don't like you know, using my brain so far outside sort of the evolutionary design specs that it's been there. You know, I want my I want my brain to be working with the minerals and the vitamins and the fats that it, it was sort of designed for, so to speak. Uh, that that makes so much sense. Do you have an opinion on uh, Brian Peskin's work with uh, you know parent essential oils and you know the sort of a recommendation for some omega sixes? Is that part of what you think about? You know, I think there's so much complexity with regards to all these interacting pathways and what goes goes on. I tend to do a fallback of a very natural approach. Um, I'm a fan of supplementing basic stuff like uh, minerals, for example. But, you know, unless you're pretty desperate, I don't like the idea too much of supplementing all sorts of different essential oils. I prefer to eat real food and to eat real food sort of the eat real food that ate real food. So we eat grass-fed beef, <laughs> you know. And, for example, eggs have plenty of omega-6 in them, but they also have plenty of other good stuff. So they'll give you all the omega-6 that you need. And, um, you know, I eat pastured eggs from chickens that have been around eating grubs and walking around in the yard like they're supposed to. So um, it gives you a better fat profile and more nutrition, more micronutrition, more um, vitamins and minerals. Uh, it, it's really kind of funny. Uh, one of the, the top six uh, sort of self-upgrades we talk about on the site is 
eat happy things that ate healthy things. Uh, essentially what <laughs> you just said there, you know, eat, eat animals that were well fed. I was wondering how ADHD related to diet and how people could possibly reduce or treat ADHD by making dietary changes. Well, I think the most interesting work in uh, ADHD and diet has been in Britain. They did some tests, very interesting studies that basically showed that if you took, now these were normal, these were, you know, kids without any kind of diagnosis of anything that I'm aware of, just kids in the community. And you gave them uh, food additives like yellow number five and red number two and and sodium benzoate in a combination that some of these kids had significantly more hyperactive uh, behavior. Um, some kids were fine. They could, they could drink all the yellow number five <laughs> they wanted and their, their behavior was just fine. But some kids seemed to be clearly vulnerable. And these same researchers went back and checked out the genetics of these kids. And they found that uh, the kids who are more likely to react to this sort, this sort of fake industrial food dyes, were um, they had a, a differences in their immune system and how they uh, metabolize histamine. So, in some respects, what they basically found was that these kids were having an emerge an allergic reaction to some, you know, sort of put it generally, um, they were having a type of allergic reaction to these food dyes. And that was manifesting as hyperactive and um, sort of bad behavior, which is very interesting. It's, it was an amazing piece of work. And so continuing on that, these researchers in Belgium published a paper earlier this year where they took 100 kids who were diagnosed with ADHD, and they put them on a an anti-inflammatory diet meant to really decrease any exposure to food allergens um, and any kind of fake foods or any industrial dyes or anything like that. And this study, uh, in the study, for the most part, the kids ate rice, white rice, which is obviously not an evolutionary food, but it's um, thought to be pretty non-toxic. They ate pears, they ate meat, they ate vegetables, and they ate water. So no dairy, no some of them were allowed a little bit of wheat, but not very much. There are a few exceptions, but in these kids on this special anti-inflammatory diet, actually 60% of them had um, significant improvement in their ADHD symptoms. And they continued on this diet for nine weeks and then they crossed over the arm. So they had 50 kids on sort of a standard diet and then 50 kids on this anti-inflammatory diet and they switched arms and the kids who switched over to the standard diet, which was basically what, you know, the government would consider a healthy diet because it was the control and these kids, their, their symptoms got worse again. And the kids who had been on the control diet and then were switched over to the anti-inflammatory diet, their symptoms got much better. So there, it was a well-designed study. It was pretty big for its kind because it was, you know, 18 weeks and actually, there was another arm where they were adding back in foods that they thought the kids might be allergic to, and uh, that actually had no difference. Adding back the foods that they thought the kids might be allergic to didn't necessarily cause a resumption of symptoms. It seemed to be the whole the whole diet change was the important thing, not any specific food for a lot of these kids, which was which was interesting. And it kind of goes to show us that the, that type of diet, without very much wheat, without dairy, without uh, these modern processed foods is probably very anti-inflammatory. These kids weren't having a so-called allergic reaction to it and their behavior was better. And it, it showed a very clear interaction between diet and ADHD symptoms. So do you think a lot of psychiatric disorders and bad behavior might be caused by poor nutrition? And especially I've heard that gluten is particularly 
problematic, and casein is also problematic in some individuals. Yeah, well, I think there is evidence, that especially in some very susceptible individuals, uh, that they could be huge problems. And there are certainly lots of anecdotes of people doing a lot better once they've taken these things out of their diets. But it can be very tricky because just a gluten-free, casein-free diet might have lots of other fake inflammatory stuff in it. So the study that you're asking about or, you know, the how to prove this, let's put everybody, say, on a uh, paleo-style anti-inflammatory diet this really hasn't been done. So we can only speculate, but it just seems to make sense that with all of these disorders increasing over the last 50 years, along with our consumption of these omega-6 vegetable oils and of this sort of nutrient-poor fried food and less in getting away from animal fats and real food and and um, local food that's grown near you so that the hopefully the, they're pretty fresh, so the vitamins and minerals are pretty fresh, I guess minerals, it doesn't matter that much, but um, with vitamins, I think it's better to eat them pretty fresh. Uh, it depends on the vitamin when they look at that, but um, you know, it just seems that we need to address the entire picture uh, rather than some of the specifics. Unfortunately, that's a heck of a lot harder to study. And if you just look at specifics, often you come up with no difference or no change, especially in the more serious conditions. For example, omega-3 has been looked at extensively for depression, anxiety, and uh, dementia. And in severe depression and with anxiety and in severe dementia, adding omega-3 supplementation alone didn't make much of a difference. I'm not that surprised by that. I mean, there's already been a lot of damage and a lot's going on. um, And omega-3 isn't going to be probably enough on its own to really turn those things around. However, when you look at... Um, people with mild cognitive impairment and uh, people with, in some studies, the people with depression without complicating anxiety, anxiety, they responded quite favorably to the omega-3s. So it kind of shows you that a little bit of intervention can be perhaps preventative and help with the milder cases. And we have some more work to do when we're looking at more uh, serious cases where there's already been a lot of damage done. And some of the stuff, you know, we aren't going to be able to undo. Right. So basically what might happen is let's say you do fix some of these omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, but then they're still eating gluten or something else, and it kind of overrides the positive effects. Dave had some cool questions about inflammation and how it influences the brain. Do you want to hack at those, Dave? Absolutely. Uh, the overriding question sort of is how does inflammation affect our minds? And the reason I'm asking it is that I've been able to, through self-experimenting and whatnot, understand that I definitely have brain inflammation when I eat the wrong foods to the point that sometimes you can even you can even measure it in the changes in the size of my head. Uh, for instance, uh, gluten and casein and MSG all will cause inflammation in the head. Sometimes it's blood flow cause. Sometimes it's actually something else, which is, I think, core inflammation. Any thoughts on... Uh, how big of an impact inflammation has on our minds? Well, if we're talking about inflammation inside the brain, um, it's very clear that inflammation is a big part of pretty much all of our mental illnesses. You can look at levels of interleukins, which are chemicals that are made by the body in response, sort of a response, an inflammatory response. So there's IL-6 and IL-2 and and TNF-alpha and all sorts of interestingly names, named uh, chemicals. And you can find them right at the right at the war zone in the brain where all these different mental illnesses take place. So for example, in depression, 
it's well known that one of the main places where uh, there's a problem in depression is in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And people with depression have increased levels of uh, TNF-alpha and IL-2 and kinetic and um, all different chemicals that are associated with inflammation in the hippocampus. So it's right there. You know, it's definitely a part of what's going on. And dementia also, you will see, you can see the inflammation. It is also true of autism. So inflammation is part of the pathologic piece of, of what's going on in the brain to cause the symptoms. It's, it's, it's really cool to hear you mention uh, autism there. In the Better Baby book, uh, the book I mentioned before, uh, one of our goals in creating a, a nutrition plan for pregnancy was to reduce the incidence of autism. Uh, my wife's a physician, and uh, she and I used a, a program like what we're talking about here with appropriate fatty acids and with very low amounts of inflammatory chemicals to do everything we could to reduce the likelihood that we would have autistic children ourselves, given that I had all the symptoms of Asperger's till I was 25 when I radically sort of rewired my brain and changed my nutrition and things like that. Uh, so it, it, the, the core idea that brain inflammation is involved um, was one of our, our kind of core ideas where we then said, what are all the things that we know can affect it and let's move those in the right direction and hopefully have a positive effect on, on outcomes. Well, I mean, that's... I Inflammation is definitely a part of autism, but that's seen in um, autopsy studies directly. Um, you can see the activation of the immune systems in the brain in certain areas that are very adversely affected in, in autism. It's not a, it's not controversial. It's not really a question at all. It's known. Um, that's uh, it, it's really great to hear you talking about that. Even though with the bulletproof executive, our our typical audience isn't someone with autism a very significant number of, of business people, even business leaders are dealing with ADHD uh, and ADD type of things going on in their brains. And it's been my personal experience and my experience working with other people uh, in a business context that when they start getting their nutrition under control, they get their inflammation under control, quality of life goes up, but quality of decision-making and basically their ability to perform in an entrepreneurial setting improves as well, even if they didn't recognize that they had inflammatory problems going on. Does your experience reflect that same sort of pattern that, that maybe some people have this going on and don't recognize it? Oh, yeah. I think a lot of times I'll see adults who've had kind of a, their ADHD their whole lives wasn't bad enough that it you know, caught anybody's attention so much when they were younger. You know, they weren't the kid who was in the back of the room jumping around on top of the, uh, you know, on top of the desks and driving everybody crazy, but they might have been daydreaming and not doing very well and not living up to their potential. But that is a lot less obvious than jumping around on the desks. So they were never really diagnosed, but it causes just the low level of the ADHD symptoms can cause so much stress over your life. Cause again, you're no, you know, you're smart, you know, you can put these things together when you're emotionally driven, you can really produce outstanding work. Cause if you do have ADHD, you actually have the ability to hyper-focus on things that are emotionally interesting to you. So it's very common to see very successful people with ADHD because they've been able to kind of ride on that hyper-focus and, um, during some times and then, you know, have some disastrous times, but have been able to kind of overcome that or get some help with, um, or cover it somehow. Um, but then over time, it just becomes so stressful over the years to do that. So I'll see many adults who come in with anxiety and depression 
but it's basically secondary to all the stress that's been caused by living with kind of low-grade ADD their whole lives. And um, it's very common, as you said, in executives. It's common in surgeons. Um, ADD is a one of those disorders that kind of takes away, but it also gives to with the hyperfocus ability. So, what about physical activity? Uh, and I, I'm I'll broach this saying that that I spend a lot of time exercising. I used to weigh 300 pounds. I weigh 200 pounds now, and have for more than 10 years. But for the last two years, kind of as an experiment, also because I've been writing a book, working full time as an executive, and just had two kids, um, I've actually not exercised, and I've had an improvement in muscle mass. I have a six pack. And I'm ready to exercise if I have to for mental performance, but it looks like on a really low inflammation, carefully designed, high-fat, paleo-friendly kind of diet, exercise may not be as important for mental performance. Um, is that true? And, and what should people be thinking about when it comes to, to mental ability and physical activity together? Well, that's kind of a hard question to answer because the studies haven't been done in the paleo anti-inflammatory crowd. So when you, the studies have been done in people as sort of the standard crowd, and some of the studies definitely show that um, physical activity is a great antidepressant. Some of the studies haven't been so clear. And I think a recent Cochrane review showed that it was pretty much a wash. However, I know talking to some people, and I know I think in my own case, if I do some regular exercise, not a huge, you know, not marathon running, but let's say run a 5K a couple times a week or do CrossFit, which is what I do now, that in general, I just kind of feel better and um, have more energy, um, but nothing terribly excessive. And certainly there are studies in mice that massive amounts of physical activity causes anxiety and inflammation. I don't know. If, I don't know if these studies Hallelujah. have been done yes. on marathon <laughs> runners. I haven't looked at that literature specifically, but I would suspect that there's a lot of distress and anxiety in general if you're just putting your body through that day after day after day mile after mile after mile in fact uh, uh, just an anecdotal thing have you seen any long-term triathlete or marathon male over 30 who's not completely bald i think i have seen a few but a lot of them are losing their hair that's very interesting well, my husband used to marathon and he's lost a lot of his hair so <laughs> <laughs> there we have it no <laughs> uh i uh i'm fortunate i still have mine but i i gave up the extreme endurance things um before i was 20 uh and i'm almost 40 so i i think by the way crossfit style you know the high intensity uh, short duration exercise seems to be exactly the most effective in the smallest amount of time, which is uh, what I will be doing as soon as I kind of break my exercise fast, so to speak. Well, certainly in my life, I also have two young children and I'm a physician and, you know, things are pretty busy. So I, I have to get up at 530 in the morning because that's my only time to go exercise. And uh, I can only do that a few days a week because, if my husband happens to be working that day, I can't do it. So um, if I only have a couple hours a week, I'm going to be doing CrossFit or something similar to that rather than, you know, I'm not going to be going to run 10 miles because <laughs> I, I don't think that would do me nearly as much good as lifting heavy things for, for 30 minutes. I love that quote. I think we might have to excerpt that uh, in, in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, lifting heavy things just gets you more in a smaller amount of time and Let's face it, it's it's a waste of time to, to go out and run long distances unless you're doing it just because you love it and you really want to. But if you're doing it because you're trying to lose weight, 
wow, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the fast path to losing weight. We'll put it that way. And I, it's interesting because I do have a lot of experience with trying sort of different diets in the past, along with different sorts of exercise and personal training. And I have to say that a combination of the sort of paleo style diet with the CrossFit has really, I've had the best results so far as body composition and how I'm feeling and, and those kinds of things so far as physical health, just in my own personal experience. Cool. So Emily, I'd like to ask a question that is getting a lot of interest nowadays on ketogenic diets. I know those have been touted as an experimental treatment for autism and numerous other disorders, I believe Parkinson's and as we talked about Asperger's. So what are your experiences with ketogenic diets and improved mental performance? And are there any major studies that you're aware of that really show a good connection? I would say there are no major studies. The only studies, there are a couple of pilot studies in autism. There's one pilot study in autism. It was only 23 people, I think. And there's one pilot study in uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Again, a similar number of folks, I think. You know, so really only 11 or 12 who were on the diet and then maybe another 11 or 12 who were controls. They both showed some positive results. Um, and we certainly need... Uh, more research. I worry about the research ketogenic diets because they're not generally coconut oil <laughs> kind of. They're generally sort of these horrible soybean oil things that they would use in kids with epilepsy. Um, so I would certainly be more interested in a um, ketogenic diet based on whole foods, coconut oil, perhaps adding some MCT oil. But theoretically, they change. They work on improving the energetics of the brain and can bypass a major complex in the mitochondria so that you can have, again, increased energy efficiency. And if your brain is kind of shorting out and not doing so well, for example, if you have autism or if you have a seizures or if you have dementia, then increasing energy efficiency can really do a lot to help your symptoms. Because people with Alzheimer's dementia have a terrible time metabolizing glucose. So if you switch over to a ketogenic diet where your brain is only burning, you know, the minimal amount of, of glucose that it has to, and then the rest, of the, the rest of the brain is burning ketones. You're going to theoretically do a lot of good, and it also it's interesting bipolar disorder. The study has not been done, though. I'm aware of some case studies. People have emailed me who have had symptoms very consistent with bipolar disorder and went on zero carb ketogenic diets, and they had vast improvement in their symptoms. There's there are two case studies in the literature. There are no randomized controlled trials at all for bipolar disorder. But since a lot of the medications for bipolar disorder also are medications for seizures, and there's definitely a lot of evidence that a ketogenic, ketogenic diets are very effective for seizures. So it would make sense that they would also be effective for bipolar disorder. But as I said, there are two case studies in the literature, and both of them were failures uh, for trying to treat bipolar disorder with a ketogenic diet. And then there are no randomized controlled trials, but it's very, very interesting theoretically. And again, the case studies that I know about out there, not, in, not published, but, um, just anecdotes, they, people had some po positive results. So it's not something that I, as you know, a, an MD and a, I have to kind of go with evidence-based medicine. So if someone comes up to me and, and says, hey, you know, with all the symptoms of, of bipolar disorder, I can't, you know, first off say, oh, you know, go on this ketogenic diet because they, we just don't have the evidence. But if someone had, 
you know, wanted to work with me with respect to a ketogenic diet and, and figure out how to do that. And some of the other options that we already have more evidence for, though they have drawbacks too, certainly medication, of course, has a lot of drawbacks, but they, for example, didn't want to do that, then I certainly would be glad to work with someone with that, but it would have to be kind of a special case. So let's say somebody was trying a ketogenic diet that did not have autism or Asperger's or Alzheimer's or some disease. They just wanted to experience better mental performance. Maybe they're getting ready for a big test or they just like being a little bit smarter. Um, Would a ketogenic diet, or do you know of any possible mechanisms by which a ketogenic diet may improve mental performance in healthy individuals? And could adding things like MCT oil or coconut oil or these other things that improve ketone production possibly improve their mental performance as well? You know, that's been highly variable when you talk, when you hear this, I don't think it's, again, it's not been systematically studied. I'm really more talking about what you sort of see and hear on the internet, which you got to take that with kind of a grain of salt, but people have very variable reactions to a ketogenic diet. Almost everybody's going to be a little bit groggy or not feel as good at the beginning. That's called the low carb flu. It's not something that, that I've actually experienced when I've you know, done fasting or anything like that. But um, a lot of people say they have it. It may be an issue with omega-3s. It may be an issue with serotonin. Who knows? But if you get past that, then some people report, wow, they're thinking clear, more clearly. They're lost their cravings. They're not distractible. And they're doing really well. Other people feel really sluggish and horrible for quite a long time. So I really think it, it depends on the person as to whether they're going to respond. You know, in a fasting situation, which will definitely get you into ketosis, um, though not probably as deep a ketosis as uh, several weeks of a ketogenic diet, um, that there's an increase in norepinephrine, and uh, which can indirectly increase dopamine about, let's say, 16 hours into it, probably 16 to 24 hours into it. And so you can definitely um, have an increase in mental acuity in kind of a a buzz from fasting for about 16 to 24 hours into it. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how good that is for you, but it feels good anyway. I've noticed that with the people who go on, on the Bulletproof diet, which essentially is ketogenic, but it's low toxin and it doesn't have omega-6 oils in it, that they they say, yes, uh, I have this this burst of energy, uh, but also I need less sleep. Usually people need one to two hours less sleep just because they have more energy. And it seems to be consistent like for longer periods of time. Have you noticed any effect on sleep quality or sleep duration uh, from your patients or from your, your research around, um, around MCT oil or just around keto, uh, ketogenic diets in general? You know... I know that, um, again, I'm going to have to go to my own personal experience because I'm not aware of any specific research addressing that or I haven't seen it or looked for it. But I know in my own personal experience, I do sleep less if I'm eating very low carb. And sometimes there are times that I felt like I didn't quite need as much sleep. But that's the only experience that I have. I still needed sleep, definitely. I wasn't manic or anything, but um, it seemed that I could go on six hours instead of eight, for example. 
Okay, so that that's pretty typical with uh, the people who are commenting on on my blog and certainly my experience where I, I talk about sleep hacking and, and ways to intentionally sleep less but still you know maintain mental performance and physical health and you know not not put your health at risk. Uh, just in other words, get more efficient sleep and and eating this way for me has been uh, pretty profound in that and that it's unlocked a couple extra hours a day. Um, so you, you've noticed something similar, but you haven't seen studies and uh, you're, you're going on personal experience, not medical research, um, which is appropriate when there is no medical research. I haven't seen any anyway. Right. No, I don't. I, I have a alert out for PubMed for ketogenic diets. And so every week or couple of weeks, I'll get emailed every study about ketogenic diets. And uh, I've been doing this for probably about a year, and I haven't seen anything of that nature. Most of the stuff's in rats and things like that anyway, but um, I haven't seen anything like that in humans. I, I was really uh, impressed when you mentioned that a lot of the research was done with omega-6 oils and, and you know, horrible things like that around ketosis. Um, I've been recommending MCT oil for quite a while because of its effect on ketosis, even in the presence of carbohydrates, and because of the studies that show niacinamide and MCT oil have such a profound effect on the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on on MCT oil and uh, why it might be so effective, or kind of what it does? Because it by actually, there's a good blog called Primal Meded. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's done by an Australian medical student. She's a fourth year medical student named Anastasia. And I believe she's at primalmeta.com. She just did a post on uh, MCT oils, I believe. And oh, cool. either that or it was my friend Jamie. I, I hope I don't get them mixed up. My friend Jamie at that paleo guy. And it basically shows that MCT oils because they're shorter than our long chain fatty acids like palmitic acid. Um, in the monounsaturated fatty acids that we eat, but MCT oil is going to be a little bit shorter, so it bypasses some of that digestion, and it kind of basically gets sort of shunted right into your bloodstream as instant ketone energy. So in order to make ketones in a standard ketogenic diet, you basically need very low uh, carb and very low protein and that forces your body to take whatever fats you have and make it in protein and make it into ketones. And um, with the MCT oil, it kind of bypasses all that and becomes ketones directly. And so that's how you can actually eat a higher carb and higher protein diet and uh, supplementing with MCT oil. And you can get more ketones in your circulation. So now, now I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, expose myself to, uh, to public ridicule. Um, <laughs> I've been promoting something called Bulletproof Coffee. It's a recipe that I've uh, just titrated for myself over uh, quite a while. And a lot of readers on the blog are just, just raving about it. And I just had it for breakfast this morning. And what it is is it's a cup of coffee with unsalted, grass-fed Kerrygold butter, about any 70 grams maybe, uh, mixed with 30 or so grams of MCT oil. Uh, you basically blend it to get a nice head of foam. It tastes like a creamy latte. But I, I drink that and I feel really good for six or eight hours, stable blood sugar, no energy dip. Uh, and then I go and I have a normal kind of uh, paleo friendly but with lower toxin bulletproof kind of lunch. Uh, 
in your understanding of how all this stuff works, uh, what do you think about that idea that, okay, you know, going in ketosis in the morning, using MCT oil, using some butter and having no carbs and no glucose, no, not even dextrose, uh, why is that so mentally effective or should it be? And, and any comments on that? I think you're probably cutting into the effect of you're sort of super supplementing your fast, uh, your overnight fast. So you're already probably in ketosis because you're probably, you know, eating a healthy diet. You're probably right. already pretty, and you've lost that extra hundred pounds. So you've probably pretty metabolically flexible. So almost anybody in good metabolic health is going to be in ketosis when they wake up in the morning, whether you eat a high carb or a low carb diet. So you add ketones to that and you're sort of doing a sort of super duper fast, but you know, obviously it's not been studied and it's also not something that we did in our evolutionary history. We didn't eat Kerrygold butter with MCT oil and coffee. So, um, you know, I can't speak to how that will work in sort of the long term or what the possible consequences might be, but it's definitely an interesting biochemical, biochemical thing. And I can see how it would help for specific situations, tests, those kinds of things. No, interestingly enough, you know, there are also studies showing that glucose, as you mentioned, or dextrose, or they sort of cross between studies of sugar and cross between studies of, of starch or glucose, that you have increased mental acuity for about half an hour to two hours after, or almost immediately, sorry, immediately to about two hours after consuming it, after which you have a big slump. <laughs> As we're all aware, I'm sure, because we've all done that to ourselves, eating sort of a high sugary breakfast with skim milk or something. And then um, two hours, you know, maybe we really, really did great on that first morning test. But then two hours into it, you're just kind of, oh, I need an apple or or something like that. So it seems to me that the using the ketones instead of the glucose, you end up with a longer period. But again, I don't you know, it's not something that's been studied in humans so much. So. You're sort of self-experimenting. Um, that's definitely one of the theories of the blog that that where if if I I think something is unlikely to cause uh, to cause significant permanent harm and I think it may have really good effects, I'm willing to experiment and gather as much data as I can and then publish the data. Um, along those lines, I've also tried putting say three teaspoons of glucose in the coffee, uh, enough to not throw myself out of ketosis. And I seem to get that you know, two hour kick from the higher glucose levels and uh, no dip afterwards. So I can still go in six or eight hours. And um, one, of my, uh, one of the people I coach specifically approached me about, well, what, what could I do while I'm preparing for the LSAT test? You know, how, how can I how can I get my brain where I want it to be while I'm studying and what should I eat the, the morning of? And we settled on that glucose plus you know, MCT and butter coffee thing. And he had just fantastic results. You know, it's a, obviously it's a one case thing. Um, you know, there's, there isn't a clear pattern and certainly no study there, but, but from my understanding of biochemistry and all, it seemed like a really interesting effect to not get that slump because God knows when I was in college, that slump killed me every time. Well, it is interesting Again, we're going back to my own personal experience because we're really out of the range of the medical literature, obviously, here. But uh, when I switched to the sort of paleo, higher fat diet myself, I used to really struggle a lot with hypoglycemia symptoms, and I would always have to have food with me wherever I went. It's kind of a pain always having, what are my six meals today? I'm packing it, and you're running off to 
you know, the hospital where you might be awake for the next 32 hours and you're going to the hospital and stealing graham crackers from the nutrition <laughs> section because you're just, because you have to be up and, and you're having a sugar crash and it's just not fun at all. So in switching to a paleo diet, I've noticed that I can get away with maybe in the morning, I'm feeling a little hungry. You know, I don't quite want to fast, but I really don't, I'm running out the door. I've got the two kids. I really don't have time to eat a real meal, but I might grab a banana and just this banana, you know, three years ago, I would have had a crash a couple hours later. And now I certainly have no problems eating a banana in the morning and feeling fine until noon, it, which is a very different experience for me because I've struggled with uh, kind of a react, uh, hypoglycemic symptoms for since I was in my mid-teens. So That's a shared experience as well, where after fixing health and fixing diet, you can do things that would have been almost disabling before from a hypoglycemic perspective. Uh, I went five years with no fruit because whenever I ate it, I felt so bad I couldn't perform at work. And now, yeah, I can eat fruit. I just don't think it's a great idea to do it very often. But I, you know, when I do, I feel okay. Let's see. One other question, and this is uh, going a little beyond the metabolic stuff we've talked about so far, but it's a question that comes up quite often on the blog and something that I researched for, for my own book. What about electromagnetic fields and, and brain cancer or mental performance? Uh, where are you on, on what you've seen from research and your own experience uh, as, a, as a practicing physician? Do you have a thought there? You probably have more of an idea of, of that than I do because it's not something that I've researched too much specifically. And when I have looked at it, I've seen both sides because they're actually kind of an interesting study in a mouse model of Alzheimer's where they were exposed to the equivalent of cell phone radiation of, you know, talking on the phone for two hours a day, which is a lot of cell phone mm -hmm. usage, I would think for any mouse. And <laughs> it actually prevented them developing Alzheimer's plaques. <laughs> so, so that was kind of a positive, um, you know, <laughs> and I've also seen other studies where, you know, it, the talking on the phone disrupted some of the mag, you know, the magnets in, in the energetics, certain areas into the brain. And that's pretty disturbing. That's something we never did before. However, Sticking a magnet on your head is one of the newer treatments for resistant depression with the transmagnetic, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's an FDA-approved treatment now for resistant depression where you go in the, every day for, I think, three to six weeks and basically put a very powerful magnet on one side of your head. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it helps. So, again, we don't know much about the long-term side of side effects of that. And that's something that you wouldn't do unless you have a very severe resistant depression. But I have sort of a mixed opinion. It's obviously, again, not anything that we were exposed to quite a lot. On the other side of that, you know, people are worried, oh, is the microwave oven? Is it getting to me? But a lot of these waves decay sort of exponentially. So if I standing up right next to the microwave, like a little kid watching popcorn pop like you might have when you were young, probably not a great idea. <laughs> but right. if you're three feet away from the microwave, you know, the waves are exponentially less powerful. So, uh, you know, I try not to worry too much about that because I really like my Wi-Fi. I like having a cell phone, you know. Well, what do you think about that? I, I, I saw some pretty, some pretty scary stuff. Um, a, a friend and a, a physician, a pretty well known in the autism community, named Dietrich Klinghart, uh, showed flat out. He, he said, "I can predict the likelihood of autism based on EMF levels in the bedroom where a mother slept or she was pregnant." 
which is a pretty big claim, but it, it's one that, that I believe and you know, he, he's got the data for it. Um, obviously, you could say there's a selection bias or, or something else. Um, but uh, I've also looked at the work of uh, Robert Becker in Electromagnetism and Life, uh, who spent his whole career looking at you know, cell regeneration and you know, how a cell differentiates. And there's certainly very small EMF effects that affect which direction a cell goes. But like you said, Wi-Fi and cell phones are a part of life. So what we did ourselves is we said, okay, where can we we reduce these things and potentially block them uh, without likely causing any uh, any damage? And so blocking them isn't going to hurt us. So we put electrical filters in the house to give us a Faraday cage in your bedroom. Not quite that bad. Uh, I, I, we thought about it. Uh, I, I did build an office once that was a Faraday cage just because it was kind of cool and I was building the office. I didn't notice any effects from it. But we have the electrical filters uh, so that we have less chaotic electrical stuff. Uh, we sleep with a, a electrically grounded, which basically means the, the EMF waves don't penetrate as far. And we turn off our Wi-Fi when we're asleep and we don't carry cell phones right next to you know pregnant tummies or gonads. Uh, but other than that, you know, you, you've got to live, right? <laughs> yep. Well, we certainly are in the sort of Wi-Fi world nowadays. Um, great. Well, I, uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I know that, that it's, it's always – this is one of those things where I don't think there is enough evidence yet, but I, I'm concerned. But I'm not you know, willing to go live in a cave somewhere because I, I don't think that that concern is, is necessarily warranted and it's not practical. But uh, it, it looks like we're we're coming up on uh, on the end of the hour of the interview. Um, I think we had a uh, another one or two questions. Yeah, what are some of your general recommendations for people who want to protect their mental or keep their mental performance high on a daily basis, as well as decrease their chances of developing debilitating brain disorders later on in life? Just what are some of the basic things that most people can do? I mean, I would say probably the most important thing from a population standpoint is to really decrease that processed food and eat more whole, real food. And I think that will pretty much work for mental health and um, general health. If there are more specific problems, sometimes we need to do obviously a lot more tweaking. And I prefer myself a gluten-free, and I also eat a casein-free diet for the most part, paleolithic style sort of evolutionary medicine diet. I really vary whether it's high carb or low carb because I can't be bothered with counting grams and macronutrients and that kind of thing. So, um, and personally, it doesn't seem to matter that much to me whether I'm having kind of a high carb day um, or a low carb day. But I would say doing that and really trying to maximize your whole real foods so that you get plenty of vitamins and minerals and choline and and saturated fat and um, all these things that are good for us and the omega-3s and throwing in some you know, some fish every now and again, uh, preferably wild caught from clean waters. And in general, trying to do that, trying to have good sleep hygiene, so you get really good, deep, restorative sleep, trying to be close, closer to the ideal weight to prevent things like ap- sleep apnea, insulin resistance, lack of metabolic flexibility, uh, so that your brain's in better shape. And, um, you know, on top of that, a bit of exercise so that we can live and lift and be happy in the world and do what we need to do and uh, feel good and not be hurt by just trying to um, move our office around or something like that. And then getting plenty of playtime and uh, trying to live low stress if you can. And 
living sort of more that evolutionary paradigm to some, some extent. So lots of play, lots of time with your family, not working yourself to death all the time. It's a pretty general recommendation. No, and again, cool. not, not, not ever, that paradigm has never wholly been tested. Um, so we got to take that into consideration, but um, it seems to be common, makes common sense to me. And I think that's where we have to start. Right. I think it's pretty good advice in, for pretty much anyone to eat good food, move more, and take a chill pill. So, yeah. Emily, uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with uh, people who are listening to our podcast today. Can you tell them where they can find more information about you if they'd like to maybe schedule an appointment or uh, read the things that you write? Well, my blog is at evolutionarypsychiatry.blogspot.com. And I also have, I'm also a blogger on Psychology Today, which is if you go to the main Psychology Today website and you search for evolutionary psychiatry, you will find my blog. And those are, sort of the more updated, more complete, prettier versions of my articles, I would say. There's a lot of information now at this point to go through if you're interested in this kind of stuff. I have a map page on my Blogspot blog uh, that kind of references things by nutrient or anti-nutrient or or condition. It's not perfect and it's not 100% up to date at this point, but it's a good starting point. If you're interested in dementia or you're interested in depression, I have lists of the articles that pertain to that. And everything links to everything else. So um, I have a lot of link backs to some of my articles. And some of them are important to understand, you know, understanding about ketosis, understanding about brain energetics. And that's why I think I'm on the right track, because I keep finding and looking up whole different, entirely different things. I'm looking up, you know, about mitochondria. I'm looking up about longevity research. I'm looking up about ADD. I'm looking up about autism and I'll find the same things over and over with respect to, you know, not having micronutrient deficiencies and having good brain energetics, but these seem to me the most important things to keep us healthy. And that's what I'd like to see a lot more research done in. So we could really have sophisticated answers to these questions. I, I think that we uh, we both share that same goal, and uh, I really am a, a fan of the way you're approaching the problem, the way you're using common sense, and you're backing it up with with good data. We will make sure to include links to all of your uh, various sources of information, the ones you just listed, uh, in the show notes that accompany the blog, and we will also have a transcript of this on the website so people can sort of search it and uh, learn about all the things we talked about today. Thanks again, Emily. Oh, thanks. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us just by leaving a positive ranking on iTunes so more people can find this. And we'd also appreciate it if you would consider ordering yourself upgrades from our very small sister site, which is called UpgradedSelf.com. You can find things like the collagen we recommend. Everything on that store is something that I use personally and have sort of developed over the course of the last 15 years of biohacking. It's not a big business and nothing on the blog or in the podcast is ever there to try and sell things. Uh, This is just a site where you can actually find some things that are very hard to find but are very performant. See you next week for the next podcast. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. 
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.